Welcome to Knocked Up, a podcast about fertility, pregnancy and women's health. I'm your host, Geordie Morrison, and I'm joined as always by Dr. Rayleigh Alou, CREI Fertility Specialist, Gynecologist and Director of Women's Health Melbourne. Welcome, Rayleigh. Hi. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform. It really helps others to find us. Give us five stars. Many people are affected by infertility. If you know someone who might benefit from listening to Knocked Up, please send them a link of our podcast. This is our passion project. We do it to support and empower women with evidence-based information to cut through the noise of Google and advice others might give, as well-meaning as it may be. If you've got any questions, please email them to podcast at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au. Don't worry, we'll keep everything anonymous. So today we're going to talk about a topic that affects all women, and that is cervical cancer screening. So maybe a quick anatomy lesson. Where is our cervix? Our cervix is at the neck of the womb, which is at the roof of the vagina. It's a little area of the body where the cells go from being the outer cells, which are what's called squamous, to the inner cells, which are made of glands, which are like little secretory cells. The in-between area is called the transformation zone. So when you have a pap smear uh, or what it's now called cervical screening sampling, and I'll talk to you a bit about why the name has changed, your doctor puts a little brush into that little canal, that little tunnel into the womb, that little kind of outer area of the cervix and kind of twirls the brush to get some cells on the brush that can be transferred into a liquid and sent off for testing. One of the things that has radically changed over the last couple of years is the way we screen the cervix. So we used to get pap smears every two years and it's exactly as you described. What, what has changed now? Well, I guess going back even further is what has changed over the last 50 years since we've been having pap smears is that cervical cancers have reduced radically. So it used to be a super common problem. And I think something to note is that cervical cancer is completely preventable. Well, it's mostly preventable. It's not completely preventable. But we know that at least 75% of cervical cancers, which is a huge proportion, the vast majority... Uh, because of an infection known as human papillomavirus or HPV. There are thousands of uh, different viruses out there. Some cause common colds, some cause the flu, and HPV is just a virus. It's most usually spread by sexual contact. So a risk factor is having sex, and the more sexual partners you've had, the bigger the risk. Makes sense. But then there, let's just say you've been exposed to HPV, there are risks as to whether you get an infection and a cervical cancer that are not sexually related. Like, for example, if you're a smoker or if your immune system's challenged, so if you're immunosuppressed, you're at a higher risk. HPV is not just one virus. There are hundreds of different types or strains of HPV. And by far and away, the most common types to cause cancer are 16 and 18. They're the bad guys. So HPV, is this this is the same virus that causes cold sores? It's not actually at all. It's a different virus completely. So that's HSV. Um, And HSV is called herpes simplex virus, and that can cause... Um, cold sores and it can cause genital herpes in a different strain but commonly mixed up 
Yes, completely. Because of the the shortening being quite similar. And warts on feet? Um, So HPV can cause warts and it can cause genital warts. So that would be HPV strain number 11. (laughs) But we're talking about 18 today. Well, no, we're not. We're talking about HPV as a group. And because there are hundreds of different strains, we kind of categorise them. And the way we categorise them on cervical screening is 16 and 18 are kind of separated out because they're the bad guys. And then there's a whole group of, you know, another lot of viruses, about 30 different strains thereabouts that are kind of classified as high-risk other. And that's because none of them are really that much worse than any of the others. And we kind of group them together because the risk profile of that group is very similar in terms of the meaning of carrying one of those viruses for a woman. What does it mean? What's her risk of developing a problem? So let's go back to the pap smears. So when pap smears were invented, the reason they're called pap smears is the gentleman, Dr. Clever, scientist, who invented them was called Dr. Papanicolou. So they were called a pap smear, eponymously. (laughs) And a pap smear is when... A sample is taken from the cervix in the way that we described. You have the speculum. The doctor has a brush sample. They take a brush scraping from the cervix. And they used to put it on a microscope slide and look at it under a microscope. And there are characteristic cell changes that occur when cells are, A, infected by the human papillomavirus, but also what happens when the human papillomavirus sticks around over many years in some women, not in all, are slow changes towards cervical cancer. So what we call pre-cancer changes. From a pathology point of view, we separate those into low-grade and high-grade. Low-grade changes are less serious. We tend to sit and watch them carefully and not necessarily use any treatments on the cervix to tackle them. And sometimes the immune system sorts it out and they get better. High-grade changes are separated from a pathology point of view into SIN2 and SIN3, and that just means that they're more serious changes that are more progressively like a cancer. And some women, unfortunately, are diagnosed with cervical cancer on a brush sampling, which just needs to be confirmed by a biopsy, uh, and there's a concern that there might be carcinoma in situ or cervix cancer. So... Screening for cervical cancer, because there are these predefined stages and we know that the natural history of the disease is not something that happens quickly, it happens over many, many years. And even in women where these cell changes are progressing, they happen very slowly. So it's a really suitable condition for a screening program to kind of diagnose the problem. And there's a suitable intervention, which is treatment of those cells to nip that problem in the bud. So that's why we used to get them every two years? Yeah. But now it's every five? Well, it is and it isn't. So what we've, what we've done over the last several decades and the most recent decade really since the vaccination of HPV has been possible is we've learnt a lot more about the virus, how the changes happen and also the population risk has changed profoundly because women who have been vaccinated against 16, 18 and some of the other are protected, very protected against getting a cervical cancer. So there's clever scientists and doctors from around the world who have kind of worked out algorithms and these will change 
as we understand more about how our population is changing and how treatment is changing. But we no longer do pap smears. We do what's called the same sample, same way of getting the cells. So nothing changes in terms of the experience for the woman. That hasn't gotten nicer. No, unfortunately not. Uh, But what we do with the sample is that we, we look at the cells under a microscope still, but we also look at whether there's HPV DNA involved. And if a woman has normal cells and there's no HPV DNA, so we know that she's not infected and her cells right now look good, then we know that it takes, even if she caught HPV tomorrow, by five years' time she'd still be okay and she wouldn't have a cancer because of our understanding of the natural history of disease. And that's even safer in someone who's not, you know, kind of having multiple sexual partners. So if someone's in a monogamous relationship and they're in that, circumstance or if someone's in a same-sex relationship and they're in that circumstance they're not likely to get another strain of HPV. So we know that in those women screening can be stretched out to five years. However with the algorithms if there's an abnormality if you have a change in the cells of the cervix and it's always important to remember that not all cervical cancers the vast majority but not all are caused by HPV so we still look for cell changes. Or if you have no cell changes, but you have a high-risk HPV, then you're triaged to either have another closer look in a year or straight to colposcopy, which is when a doctor looks at the cervix in really great detail with a microscope. And it's a procedure. And and at a colposcopy, uh, we might take what's called a little biopsy, which is a little pinch of cervix, um, not very pleasant, but... Um, and this is done when you're fully aware, no anaesthetic, it's not you, that you dramatic? Don't, you don't need it. It just is a little kind of a pinch. An anaesthetic, putting the drip in for the anaesthetic would be more dramatic than the biopsy. So it's 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 very... Uncomfortable. Very, look, it's not particularly... It's not my dream way to spend an afternoon if I was a patient, but it's nothing terrible. Um, we look for about 15 minutes closely at the cervix under magnification so using a high power microscope we often apply stains to the cervix to kind of highlight the areas that are abnormal and make them stand out make them pop one of the stains is called acetic acid the other is is called iodine and the acetic acid makes the abnormal cells stand out and the iodine is for contrast taken up by the normal cells so it kind of really highlights the abnormal areas And when we're taking a biopsy, we really want to focus on the worst area and make sure that we've got a good sample. And then we send that off to the pathologist. It's, by the way, smaller than a fraction of a match head, the amount of cells that you actually take in a biopsy. And there's no necessary aftercare or anything like that. It just heals really quickly, a little bit like when you bite your cheek. It'll heal really super quickly. Uh, The pathologist takes those cells and is infinitely more cells than on a scraping. And they look at it under a microscope and they apply other stains. One important stain is called P16, not to be um, confused with HPV, HPV 16, 16, I know. Um, but that's a stain that kind of um, is often positive in, in cells that are taking that those first steps along the journey to be cancer cells. And um, that just helps us understand where the changes in the cervix are at and if a woman has a high grade change that's been confirmed the next step is, is to consider whether we treat and we usually do 
and treatment is either using laser or a LEAP or a LETS um, where we take uh, a few cells, we either destroy the cells by ablation or uh, remove the cells surgically gently and um, that usually gets rid of the virus or at least gets rid of the abnormality. If you've had the vaccination before you've been sexually active or even if after being sexually active but before you've had HPV, is it possible to contract HPV once you've had the vaccination? It is. And the reason for that is that the vaccine's not perfect. Um, like any vaccine, there'll be a proportion of people who don't respond in the way that it's designed. Uh, there'll be a proportion of people who aren't protected despite being vaccinated. But more commonly, the vaccine, the most recent uh, version of the vaccine is only against nine different types of HPV. The original ones were only against two and then there was one that was against four in between. In, there's, there's not yet a vaccine that covers all strains that can cause cervical change. So with today's vaccine, you are protected against the worst of the HPV variants, but you're not protected against them all. And women, as, and this is purely anatomically, because we in our cervix have this area called the transformation zone, which is like the perfect destination for HPV. It's where HPV can hide, where it likes to live, it's moist, the cells are very susceptible. We can get infections that persist and we don't get rid of them. And, and because the cells are infected for a long period of time, that they're kind of susceptible to these changes. Men, on the other hand, um, unless we're talking about the subgroup of men who have sex with men, don't have an area of the body that's similar. So they can catch HPV, they can pass it on, but they don't have a persistent infection. And so from their point of view, they don't have that same problem of getting a cancer of the penis, for example. Men who have sex with men can get anal, anal cancers because inside the anal ring are similar cells to those of the cervix and, and that can cause a cancer in that place. Or anyone having anal sex. So what stage would that be checked? Um, so, yeah, females, for that, for that matter, who have anal sex can also have anal cancer from HPV potentially. It's not checked. It's not screened. It's not an easy place to screen. Uh, it's um, one of these things that's usually not picked up on a screening program. Can you describe to us really simply... What is cervical cancer? So I guess it goes back to the question of what is a cancer. So a cancer is basically a cell behaving badly. Our cells, are, well, we're made up of cells. They're the building blocks of our, our organs and tissues. And cells have a nucleus, which is, or a lot of cells have a nucleus, which is the place where we keep our chromosomes and DNA. And that's where the genes kind of uh, run things. So that's kind of like the the place where the instructions come from. And then cells are together kind of functioning to make tissues. So like, for example, the cervix is an organ, it's part of the uterus. So it's a, a tissue that's meant to have a certain architecture. The cells that are making glands are meant to just make glands. The cells that are you know, making the outer skin surface are meant to just make the skin. And they've got tissue planes that are like the the zones where one type of tissue should be and another type of tissue shouldn't cross over into. 
A cancer is a cell, it starts off as one and then can divide and become a group of cells that don't obey those rules. They're not really following the program and they can change and they can invade across tissue planes. They can metastasize, they can cause a tumour and they can spread through the blood, through the lymph nodes to other areas of the body and cause other tumours in other places. And because those tumours don't behave in the normal way and they're not regulated in the normal way, they can grow and cause damage to other surrounding tissues. And that's how cancers spread and that's how they um, cause tissue damage which can, which can ultimately result in a person uh, having organ failure or dying. So cervical cancer is when the cell that started that mischief started from the cervix. And in terms of what it's like to have a cervical cancer, it's pretty horrible. Um, the surrounding tissues immediately around the cervix are things like the uterus, but also blood vessels, the bladder, the rectum. So a mouse in that area can be very uncomfortable, can affect your bladder and bowel function. And of course, like any cancer, it can spread to other places, ultimately can compromise your survival. Before it gets to a cancerous stage, obviously we, we can still be diagnosed with HPV. How does that affect fertility? So HPV doesn't affect fertility per se unless it causes a cancer that requires you to have treatment or unless potentially the intervention might cause a problem. When we do a LETS procedure or a LEAP, we don't think that that affects fertility at all. If you have more than one of those procedures, so the cervix can be weakened, or if you have a cone biopsy, which is a deeper version of the same procedure, depending on uh, what kind of changes you have at the cervix. If you had a cancer there that was in a very small area, a gynaecology oncologist might decide to do a cone biopsy, which is a deeper but still limited removal of the cells of the cervix. That can, in theory, weaken the cervix. And if you try and get pregnant after a cone biopsy, uh, then it's possible you have a premature baby, a preterm birth. In terms of the next pretty radical thing that we sometimes do to save a woman's fertility, if she has a serious cancer of the cervix, but we don't want to do a hysterectomy, hysterectomy is when we take the whole uh, uterus away, is we can do what's called a radical trachelectomy. Again, this would be done by a gynecological oncologist, which is a gynecologist who subspecialises in cancer. And um, for those of you out there who are wondering who that is, well, our college has certain subspecialties. For example, I'm a reproductive endocrinologist, which is a gynaecologist who's completed six years of training in ONG and has gone on to do further three years subspecialty training in infertility medicine. A gynaecological oncologist is a fully trained ONG who's gone on to do at least three years in gynaecological cancer surgery. Uh, so that's a subspecialist in cancer. So a radical trachelectomy is a procedure where the top of the uterus is spared and the cervix is removed. So it's a, it's a pretty subspecialised surgery, but it is possible and it's a way that women who are young women with cervical cancer may be able to go on and have children later in life. And of course, if someone has a cervical cancer that is beyond the level where they could have a trachelectomy, they might be recommended to have radiation therapy as first line. Radiation therapy can 
get rid of the cancer, but sometimes it has uh, the ability to generally render a woman infertile. And of course, if you had a hysterectomy, that does render a woman unable to carry a baby. Yeah, and we often, if, if a woman, if a young woman who wishes to have a family does have a diagnosis and needs one of these more advanced treatments, we can offer fertility preservation treatments. So I can freeze her eggs, we can transpose her ovaries higher in the pelvis, so if she's having radiation, that might relatively protect her ovaries from radiation damage. And we can use those eggs to make embryos, we can um, take a woman through IVF later after her treatment if her ovaries transposed and maintained and then she can help healthily have a baby with a surrogate uh, by transfer of her own embryo into a surrogate's womb. But cervical cancer is serious, it's very it serious and prevention is better than cure. Absolutely. So HPV doesn't affect fertility per se but what if you have HPV and you give birth? Can that transfer to the child? Does that impact the child in any way? We don't think so, no, except for the genital wart strain. So if you have genital warts, uh, you can pass that on. And often the most common place for a baby to be affected by genital warts is on the vocal cords. They can get warts on the vocal cords. Uh, But it's not a common problem. It's not a common problem. So there was something in Cosmo about if you've had a let's, you'll never orgasm again. Can you maybe quickly describe a let's, which you've mentioned a few times, and maybe debunk that? Yeah, so I'd really like to debunk that myth because it's totally not true. And I guess the writers of Cosmo should have probably had a little bit of an anatomy lesson and a bit of a better understanding of the physiology of a female orgasm before freaking out unnecessarily probably thousands of women between their print version and the spread of their article this on the This was the internet. American version. Yeah. the American Cosmo. Yeah. Um, and then just to make matters worse, there were a few so-called influencers on social media who don't have medical qualifications who jumped on the bandwagon and and spread that further. So as is the purpose of the podcast where we go to science. Yeah, absolutely. So science all the way. Look, a LETS procedure, LETS is L-L-E-T-Z and it stands for Large Loop Excision of the Transformation Zone. If we have any listeners in the USA, they might know it as a LEAP procedure which is a loop electrosurgical excision procedure. Same thing? Same thing. They just we, we sometimes differ on terminology, but the action is, is identical. So what we do with this procedure, and bear in mind your doctor knows that your cervix is important and your doctor knows that they don't want to take a huge chunk of your cervix away. They only want to remove the cells that are abnormal and the cells that are at risk of causing you cancer. So by doing nothing, we increase your risk of going on to develop a cancer which is a very bad thing to get. Anyway, so what we do in this procedure is we, depending on your anatomy, so everyone's different, just like you look at people in a room and they've got a different shaped nose, every woman has a unique and different shaped cervix. Some are large, some are small, some are petite, um, some are long, some are short. It's just the way of the world. (laughs) Um, So we choose the size of the loop that we use. It's a wire loop on an electrical instrument. And we put an electrical current through that and it's just a gentle electrical scalpel in the right shape. And I always kind of, I use the analogy of like an ice cream scoop going through ice cream. We use the loop to just gently scoop out the abnormal cells. And we want to take as little as we can and as much as is necessary. 
and weaken the cervix minimally but get all the abnormal cells. So often what we do is during the procedure we'll repeat the colposcopy and use a microscope to have a look at the cervix while we're doing it and put the stains on again while we're doing it. And that helps us take as much as we need and as little as possible. Now the cervix is not involved in the female orgasm. The female orgasm is derived from usually two sources, vaginal and clitoral. And taking some skin cells from the cervix does not diminish a woman's potential to orgasm. So in fact, it's nowhere near anything to do with an orgasm. It's nowhere near anything to do with an orgasm. So, you know, when I discuss risks of this procedure to patients, I talk about bleeding, I talk about infection, because those are risks from any operation. I talk about the fact that theoretically the cervix can weaken from a procedure, even though we don't think this procedure increases the risk of premature birth. I talk about the potential to have scarring of the cervical canal and narrowing of the cervical canal. I don't talk about losing your orgasm and it's not because I don't care if women lose their orgasm. It's because women don't lose their orgasm from this procedure. So ladies, don't worry if you've had a leap or if you have to have one because you know, your doctor has strongly recommended it's the right thing for you, you don't have to worry that you're going to lose your orgasm. It's not going to happen. Thank you for reassuring us. You're most welcome. <laughs> and look, the other thing that I really want to say is that HPV, it's not, you know, we didn't used to consider it a sexually transmitted infection, even though it's sexually transmitted. We didn't call it an STD or a sexually transmitted disease. I think HPV is the common cold of the cervix. And just like you wouldn't be upset with yourself or feel guilty or have any negative emotion, you know, kind of by catching a cold. Really, we shouldn't feel that way about HPV. It's just a virus in our environment. Nobody catches it on purpose. And it's, it's really something that shouldn't carry a lot of stigma. Ideally, the vaccine will eventually cover more strains. And there really shouldn't be any concerns from parents about their children being vaccinated. We're now vaccinating boys as well, which is really going to make a difference because you really have to vaccinate both girls and boys to really, in the population, get rid of a virus and reduce the risk of anybody getting it, including those who can't be vaccinated or who are vaccinated and don't respond to the vaccine. So we want to create something called herd immunity. And kids who've been vaccinated against HPV are not going to be more promiscuous. It's, it's not something parents should worry about. Um, what we should worry about is preventing the risk of cervical cancer for our daughters in the future. So vaccinate our sons to protect our daughters and our population will be protected. Thank you for listening to this episode of Knocked Up. For more information about HPV, fertility and women's health, please visit womenshealthmelbourne.com.au. You can also check out past episodes. We've covered so much about how to get pregnant, egg freezing, the legality of IVF in Australia and much more. By subscribing to our podcast and giving us five-star review, it really helps others find us. Our mission is to empower women seeking real, honest and accurate fertility advice and we appreciate your help. Follow us on social media at Women's Health Melbourne and also at Dr. Ray Lealu. We'll be back with another episode soon.